Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, A Danger from Within, with a message titled, Growing in Grace. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I love the word grace. <laughs> you know, it speaks of everything that's in the Christian life, from the forgiveness of sins to the adoption into the family of God, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, to the unfading promises of eternity. Grace tells me that God gives to those who have not merited or earned anything. Grace tells me that God is love. Grace makes me ever more reliant on God and ever less reliant on myself, or perish the thought, ever more believing that I have something with which I can commend myself before God. Grace says, God looked at me and found me falling short, but that didn't stop God from pouring out all the riches of heaven on me. See, grace means not only that I belong, but that I eternally belong. Grace is a marvelous word. I love the word grace. Now, today I'm going to end the series on 2 Peter at the very point that Peter ends his letter with the appeal that his readers should grow in grace. Now, does that make it sound like there's something that we should yet accomplish? Well, partly that's true. But because grace is grace, whatever it is, it can't be obtained by our own efforts. It's given. It has to be received. But also because grace is grace, it's an imperative that we must grow in grace, meaning that we must, according to Peter, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The more we learn about Jesus, the more we learn about his agenda of grace, and the more we mature, and the more we become like our Lord. I don't mean to say that this is just a passive process. It's not. Jesus doesn't simply just do it and we don't have any part in that. Yeah, of course, you know, we've got to learn to struggle against what false teachers say. We need to struggle against the deceitful passions of our flesh. We need to learn to master our body. We need to obtain Christian values. But the power for all of that comes from God. The power comes because of grace. So let's read the, the last paragraph of 2 Peter. It's 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So think of this paragraph as containing a series of four concluding exhortations or four appeals. Do these things, says Peter. And again, an appeal is not at odds with the idea of grace. In grace, God makes an appeal to us so that we might not fall into the errors that are at the heart of this book. Let's look at the first one. It's the appeal to be blameless. Look again at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, this sentence is a transitional sentence. It forms a bridge between, you know, the conclusion of the book and what Peter's just said before. 
You know, Peter's just reminded his readers that we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Since that's what we're waiting for, let's be diligent. He means that we need to put intense effort into something. Don't let what's being said be forgotten. Make it a theme in your life. Whatever else you do, make sure that when Jesus returns, you're found without spot or blemish and you are at peace. And that's not the first time Peter has spoken that way. All the way back in 1 Peter 1.19, he spoke about being ransomed from the futile way of life that his readers had inherited from their own pagan ancestors. They were, says Peter, purchased by the blood of Christ, whom he describes as being without spot or blemish. Now there in 1 Peter 1.19, what Peter means when he says without spot or blemish, he means without sin. Now, this wording, without spot or blemish, seems to be the exact opposite of the false teachers that Peter spoke of in 2 Peter. You might remember 2 Peter 2.13. He called the false teachers blots and blemishes. See, those words indicate that false teachers didn't care about their own personal sins. They just kept sinning. Peter wants his readers to strive towards holiness, strive to overcome every sin in your life, make it your passion, always giving intense effort to constantly fight every tendency towards sin. And in the case where you might be sinning but not aware of it, once you become aware of it, repent, seek to defeat that sin. It's not just Peter that speaks this way. Paul did as well. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he speaks of establishing our hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so let's make it our aim, my brothers and sisters, that the sin that so easily clings to us would be removed from us through the means of grace that God has provided. What means has God provided? He's provided repentance. He's provided prayer, regular Bible reading, the power of the Holy Spirit, accountability to brothers and sisters at regularly attending worship services. You know, sometimes when I think of this, I, although I, I've never been in the military, I think of this in military terms. I imagine a commanding officer coming, and when he comes, all the soldiers make sure there's not a spot or wrinkle on their uniforms. Now, someone's going to say, I'm mean, sure he doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to become sinless in this life. Well, no, we're not. First John 1 verse 8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But that very same book warns against the practice of sinning. Chapter 3 verse 4. And four verses later, it says that all who make a practice of sinning, well, they're of the devil. See, I think it right to interpret Peter's words as saying that from now on, we will be diligent with every known sin in our lives and seek to utterly defeat it. And then at the end of this verse, Peter adds, and be at peace, be at peace with God, be at peace with brothers and sisters. So that's the first appeal at the end of the book, that Christians must be blameless. Now, here comes the second appeal accept God's truth. That is, understand that God has communicated truth to you in the pages of Scripture, and the Scriptures are the only reliable means you have for knowing God's will, and that's incredibly important, both in Peter's day as well as in ours. With so many false teachers about, whom do you trust? And Peter's answer is simple. Trust the Scriptures. That's the only reliable guide you have. Can I say that again? No, it's not your favorite teacher. No, it's not the Pope. No, it's not the guy who sells the most books. Not any of that. The only certain guide you have is the Scripture. And Peter starts this section in verse 15a by speaking of our Lord's patience and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Again, Peter's speaking about the false teachers. 
They scoff at the idea of the day of the Lord. Remember, they said it won't happen. But true believers know that the delay in the second coming has everything to do with God's compassion for the lost. He's giving men and women time to repent. And so the patience of our Lord, says Peter, is to be counted as salvation, that is salvation for many. Now, Jesus spoke that way in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the father was waiting patiently. Well, our heavenly father waits patiently as well. And Peter then taking that theme moves us to why we know that's the case. How do we know that the delayed coming of Jesus is because God is patient rather than, as the scoffers are saying, he's not coming at all? Listen to Peter in verses 15b to 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I gotta stop here and notice that Peter was, at the time of the writing of this book, quite aware that Paul's writings were scripture. Now, those liberal Bible teachers that claim that Peter could not have written 2 Peter because of this very verse. According to liberal scholars, the church was, in its infancy, made up of teachers from a wide variety of different viewpoints. People gave prophecies, and itinerant teachers were everywhere, going from church to church, and they taught a wide variety of disparate topics. And then later, you know, perhaps 200 years later, there was a move to muscle out those various voices and then create an artificial orthodoxy or a common standard of teaching. I mean, for the liberals, the idea of one truth once for all given to the saints, that's just not true. But then we come to this writing by none other than the apostle Peter. Peter says, look, I know that there are a community of people, 12 of them, maybe it's 13, they are the Lord's apostles. And he said so in 2 Peter 3, verse 2, where he speaks about the prophets of the Old Testament, and then he speaks about your apostles, that is, the ones directly trained and chosen by Jesus to write down the truth of God for the benefit of the church. Now, here's a passage that we've just read. Peter goes even further. He says, when Paul, who is an apostle, because he was directly chosen and trained by Jesus himself, when he writes, he's writing scripture. Now that idea was there at the very start of the church. The Back to the Bible Canada blog page has recently seen some exciting changes. So in addition to Dr. John's blogs, we'll now be having regular monthly blog contributions from special ministry guests and friends of the ministry. So make sure to receive the Back to the Bible Canada Dr. John and Company blogs each week by signing up for our audio mail or download our Back to the Bible Canada app or just visit backtothebible.ca every week. Timely, interesting, biblical perspective sharing thoughts about faith, life, and culture with the Bible at the very center. To check out the Dr. John and Company blog page, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. And remember to ask for your free ministry resource, 10 Questions About Money Matters, during the month of August. You know, there are some who argue that Peter and Paul didn't agree, but yes, they actually did. I know that Paul in Galatians mentions a time when they didn't. 
It's in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says that at one time he opposed Peter to his face. Peter had been intimidated by a group of false teachers called the Circumcision Party, and those people taught that unless all males were circumcised, they couldn't be saved. And on top of that, they also added that the Gentiles had to adhere to Jewish dietary restrictions. Now, Peter had been freely eating non-kosher meals with Gentile Christians. But when the Circumcision Party showed up, well, Peter got intimidated, and he drew back from eating with the Gentiles. And that's when Paul confronted him. But that incident doesn't reflect a disagreement between Peter and Paul. Rather, that incident reflects what should be happening in every Christian fellowship. When one brother sees another brother sinning, it's the obligation of the brother to point out the other's sin so that there might be restoration and repentance. And that's what explains Galatians chapter 2. See, the fact is, Peter and Paul loved each other, and they taught the same thing. We know that Silas, who was Paul's colleague, also worked with Peter. We also know that at the very famous Council of Jerusalem, a council that's described in Acts chapter 15, that Paul and Peter together joined forces to defeat the circumcision party and to make sure that they had no part in teaching that corrosive doctrine. And after the council was over, Peter, along with others, chose Paul and Barnabas as the men who would deliver the decision of the council of Jerusalem to all the Gentile churches. Peter and Paul were not opponents. They were fellow workers. They were fellow apostles who agreed in the cause of Christ. They were trusted colleagues with one another. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that the real Peter should write to the churches in Asia and he should encourage them to read the writings of Paul and to think of those writings as scripture. So let's review what Peter said about Paul's writing. First, he mentioned that Paul wrote according to the wisdom that had been given to him. Notice it's not Paul's wisdom. Rather, it's the wisdom that Paul received. And of course, Peter means that the wisdom in Paul's letters came directly from God. And that's exactly what Paul also says about his own letters. Galatians 1 verse 1, he writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That is, Paul says, I didn't get this wisdom from being taught by other people. Rather, I got this because I was directly mentored and taught by Jesus. Now, when Paul says that, he's not saying that the rest of us could say the same thing as well. Indeed, it would be deceitful for anyone to say that today. Rather, what Paul and Peter are saying is that there's something unique about the apostles shared by no one else. The apostles never wrote on their own accord. They were taught directly by Jesus, and the Holy Spirit superintended everything they wrote so that what they said was exactly what Christ wanted said. And Peter says that Paul writes according to the wisdom that was given him. And then he adds, that's the case in all of his letters. You know, we who read his letters today should know that's true of every letter we have. You know, we also know that both Paul and Peter were martyred at approximately the same time, you know, in the city of Rome. So we have then every reason to believe that it's quite likely that when Peter said these words, all 13 letters of Paul had already been written. And we do know from Paul's writings that he urged the churches to take his letters and to read them as widely as possible they were circulated. 
Next, when, when Peter speaks of Paul's letters, he says that some things in them are hard to understand. I like that because if Peter struggled to understand them, I'm greatly encouraged because sometimes I struggle to understand them. I mean, after all, Paul was raised to become one of the leading rabbis of his day. It should not surprise us then at some points he writes as a scholar would write, and it takes some effort to understand. Now, Peter then adds something that was already beginning to plague the church. He says that the ignorant and unstable were twisting the writings of Paul. And then he also added that they were twisting the other scriptures as well. Notice the word here is scripture, the Greek word graphe, writings. It's a word that's used to define the writings of the Old and the New Testament. And Peter is doing this. He is including the writings of Paul in sacred scripture. But what is it to twist or distort the scripture. How can you tell if the teacher of scripture is distorting the word? You know, there are a great many people today who don't understand that. And so for them, if anyone quotes scripture, at least in their mind, that must be good. So how do we know if someone's interpreting the Bible correctly or whether they're wrong? You know, at the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, that was the great concern. And the reformers stressed what they called then census plenary or in English, the plain sense of the text. They rejected the supposed Holy Spirit special interpretation that some people were stressing in that day. And of course, what they meant is that we should, in one sense, read the Bible in the same way as we read anything else. We should let the text speak for itself, pay attention to the grammar, pay attention to the use of words, pay attention to the context in which something was written, pay attention to the historical background of a text. In short, the thing we're trying to do is to read the Bible in the way that it was written, trying to discover what the writers of the Bible actually were saying. False teachers, on the other hand, ignore that. False teachers simply quote a text from here and then from there. They have a topic about which they want to speak, and occasionally they'll quote a scripture verse and bolster their point rather than letting the text speak for itself. Now, I have a joke about this. I say that one day I'm going to write a bestseller, and I'm going to call it How I Lost 50 Pounds by Speaking in Tongues. (laughs) Now, I say that just as a jest because I want to say that the Bible doesn't actually address the issue of weight loss. But I can see people pulling out verses out of context and making the Bible say anything they want and anything that's in accordance to the mood of the day. Very well. We've talked about Peter's concluding exhortation, his appeals. First, he said, be blameless. Second, be scriptural. Third, reject error. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice the words, you therefore beloved. I hope you see that. Peter's building a contrast between those who, who distort the scripture and those who are reading his letter. He thinks that those who are paying attention to what he's saying are in an excellent position. Those people are not likely to be carried away by the error of lawless people. But Peter still warns even those of us who are always paying attention to Scripture that we too must, in his words, take care, be on your guard. It's because, as we've already mentioned, certain people sneak into the fellowship. They're quickly accepted, they're winsome, and they're even easy to love. But Peter reinforces that they're lawless men. 
These people are known by their conduct. They, they disobey. They ignore the law of God. Even though Peter has made this point before, he reemphasizes it here. But what really catches our eye is that last phrase in verse 17. Peter doesn't want us to lose our stability. Other translations say, lose our secure position. The original means that we should not be moved from a place of safety. There's an old painting I'm aware of. It, it depicts Jacob's ladder and the many saints that are climbing up it to heaven. But around the ladder are demons, and they're depicted as dragging one climber after another off the ladder and carrying them off to the land of the damned. And while that old painting may strike the modern reader as being, you know, somewhat macabre, yet it expresses an important truth. The truth is this. There are many who have attempted the life of godliness only to have fallen away to their own destruction. And Peter knows that his readers will not be among that group, for they have been given grace. And that leads us to the last urging that Peter has in this text, and it's in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, that's a fitting and wonderful way to end this book on the subject of false teachers. I'm told that bank tellers in the past used to be trained to spot counterfeit currency by constantly handling real cash so that they could get a sense of what real cash feels like. It's the same way with truth. If you're not growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, you're easily taken in. If you're not reading the scripture, if you're not fighting the flesh, you will not be aware when a false teacher comes to claim you. But if you're growing in grace, the false teacher will never have a claim on you. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this question in conclusion. You know, why do you think Back to the Bible Canada now and throughout its history has chosen to be so meticulous and strict in how it teaches the Bible? Yeah, I'm so thankful for the long history of Back to the Bible and uh, what God has done. But I think, uh, you know, this is such an important question. Uh, it, it's never about what any teacher at Back to the Bible has thought. It's rather about what the Scripture has taught, and we are to submit our will to the will of Scripture. And so that has to be borne out in the way that Scripture gets taught. It's not my will, but what Scripture wants to say. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a great series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to the mission of providing excellence in Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible. Both Bible teaching and engagement programs are available online through video, print, radio, podcast, mobile app, and CD. It's our prayer that anyone who tunes in will discover encouragement for their spiritual journey and insight for living through the study of the Bible. All of these resources are made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. It's your generous donations that allow the mission to be accomplished. So thank you for all you do. And remember, that if you want to receive our monthly gift this month, Dr. John's new booklet, 10 Questions About Money Matters, all you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us 
at 1-800-663-2425. And thanks again for your generous support.